Sony. Hello, Canada. Today's date is November 20th, 2022, Grey Cup Sunday. Welcome to a full edition of Canadian Common Sense, Canada's Issues in Under an Hour. It is Tony in Regina, Saskatchewan. And Lewis out here in BC wishing he was in Regina with Tony at Grey Cup. Yes, it's uh, it's been great. I'm not going to lie. And I uh, have deliberately been sending you pictures all the time I've been here to shame you for not being here. So uh, thanks for putting <laughs> up with that. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks for that. It's uh, <laughs> it's it's been uh, uh, it's been a crappy two days getting me all these pictures. But because because uh, I, I mean, as our listeners, I mean, in long term listeners will know that prior to COVID um, Tony and I go to Grey Cup every year and uh, um, this year I was still a bit worried about the government deciding to shut everything down again and so I just didn't take the chance uh, to book everything um, because uh, the last time uh, was in 2020 and that of course got everything got shut down and the CFL didn't even have a season. And, uh, uh, and then we got into this vicious cycle of trying to use our, our, uh, you know, our, our airline points and all this before they expired and all this kind of stuff. So I just didn't want to take the chance of having everything canceled again this year. And in the end it wasn't. So now I'm, I'm the one on the outside. But uh, that's all right. That's all right. Next year, it's in Hamilton, and we'll be there. And uh, and the year after that's in Vancouver, and we'll be there too. Absolutely, yeah. And I know there was a, uh, a game in Hamilton last year that neither of us went to because the same thing. We were both worried about government restrictions and whatnot. And there was still some uh, mask mandates and whatnot in Hamilton last year. So it wasn't as much of a ceremony uh, or as much of a festivity, I should say, as it is this year, and it's going to be again next year when it goes back to Hamilton. So it's, uh, but honestly, it's been great. And uh, of course, Lewis knows well in the about the all the team party rooms and all the festivities that go on before Grey Cup. And yeah, they've they what's when this year have been really fantastic is in past years we've went every team party room had their own separate admission, so you'd pay your 20 bucks to get into the team room and if you left well you had to pay 20 bucks at the next room or whatever this year they actually issued wristbands so you could just go freely between all the rooms and that was great because then i went to every single room and if the, so if it wasn't really all that happening i would just leave and go to the next one so it was uh it was great that way i got to see it all oh it's good that's good and i mean traditionally uh edmonton has the best party room at Grey Cup. Um, but uh, I understand they're not even in the same area this year. Yeah, it was really weird. And uh, I heard some people say, oh, it's because there wasn't enough space for them. It's like, well, no, they could have made space where everybody else was. I think they just decided at the last minute, oh, maybe we should come. And they booked a space basically across town. And they didn't really advertise it. All I, the only thing I saw was that they were having a, a breakfast meeting yesterday or the day before and they were charging 135 bucks and they didn't say that there's any guest speakers or really anything so it's like well i guess i'm not going to spirit of edmonton this year yeah spirit of edmonton um they usually have that that super duper expensive breakfast but they usually announce that you know they've got a couple of Hall of Famer football players that are going to be there, a couple of coaches and all that kind of stuff to, to give talks and to do meet and greets and, and all that. And, uh, and I think they, the breakfast was like a hundred bucks last time, but 135 now. And yeah, I mean, if I remember seeing that Edmonton didn't even have a party room listed uh, as part of the great cup festivities until like, just a few days ago so i mean they must have they must have must have been a last minute decision um 
and maybe they were maybe they were thinking the same thing I was that everything was going to get canceled anyway so why bother but uh but yeah I mean that seems like a little bit of poor planning because every other team had a room so yeah like the eastern teams uh all four eastern division teams shared a room it was the eastern social hall it was uh it was probably it was okay but it wasn't nearly as good as for example the lions den for the bc lions or the calgary stampeders room it was it was funny because riderville as always is got a huge room and they had some good bands and whatnot and it was really busy but i found when i was there people were having a good time but nobody was really dancing they would just kind of stand around and enjoy the music etc fine but when i went to the stampeders room for example it was a smaller venue and uh but the very clearly defined dance floor and it was just hopping and uh, the, the bc lions den was probably like you know very close second right behind the stampeders room but those two places were the places to be it was just uh, an amazing atmosphere and so very very canadian it was just uh didn't matter where anybody was from you'd see bomber fans dancing with alouettes fans and stampeders fans getting together with with rider fans it was uh oh the horror yeah <laughs> it, was, uh, <laughs> it, was, it was really cool i actually chatted with for a while with a couple of guys that were from montreal out for the first time in, in regina so it was a uh, nice to have a little chat cross country chat as it were and it was uh yeah it was a great time good good that's great um well, I mean, if you're listening to this show before Grey Cup, have a great game, everybody. I mean, it's it should be a good game. And uh, being from out west, uh, you know, go Bombers. Um, yep. Because uh, I can't stand whenever any team from Toronto wins a championship. Um, <laughs> it's uh, no offense to those from Toronto or Southern Ontario, but... Uh, you guys suck when you guys win championships. <laughs> the, air, the arrogance that comes out of Toronto when they win championships is unbelievable. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no offense, but go Bombers. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I managed to secure a ticket for today, and I wanted to just tell that story quickly because, again, such a very Canadian way I got this ticket was uh, – I want a marketplace. This gentleman had two tickets for sale. So I messaged him and just said, would, would you be willing to split them up? And, you know, I only need one. And he's like, well, I want to sell them as a pair. He says, but my dad has a single seat and he's looking to sell it. Let me get a hold of my dad and I'll get back to you. So um, he got a hold of his dad and I ended up buying his dad's ticket through him. And uh, so it was great. So I actually got a single seat in a better spot than where this dude's seats were uh from his dad <laughs> uh, very canadian experience didn't just say bugger off I got, i'm only i'm only selling two tickets he instead decided to find me just a single so uh that was awesome so now i'm i'm in the lower bowl 17 rows from the, the field it's uh it's gonna be great oh right on cool well have a yeah. good time at the game man I'm, I'm a little jealous gotta be honest yeah, well, and uh, it's funny when I left for Grey Cup, my wife was like, so, uh, you know, how are you going to have any fun without your wingman being there? That being you, Lewis. Yeah. And uh, they said, do you not know who your husband is? I can talk to anybody. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, I've, yeah, I've been going around the, the party rooms. I met up with a friend of mine the other night, but otherwise I've just been kind of touring around being me and uh, I've had a great time. So, uh Yep, I'm looking forward to the game. It's going to be great. I'm going to the tailgate party right after our show is done. And uh, well, most, import most importantly, did you uh, did you see the blue bastard? I saw him twice, but I wasn't able to get his attention. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we partied with the blue bastard back in 2019, so and that was fun. Um, so uh, let's let's get on with the important topics of the day. Absolutely. So on the show today, the dental care pawn is now law. Ontario teachers strike. Public order emergency testimony continues. Justin Trudeau grows a pair. Saskatchewan marshals, immigration, and more.
Where do you want to start, sir? Well, let's just start right at the top there. Okay, so dental care is now law in this country. The legislation has passed. It's received royal assent. So here's some of the details for you. And then we will, uh... again, it's not the worst plan on paper. So now we've talked about it before. They were suggesting that all families with a family income, a household income of less than $90,000 would qualify for this. They've put a three tiers into it. So if your family income is between 70 and 79,000, the families are eligible for $390 per child per year, 80 to 89,000, $260 per child per year. And if you're under 70,000, then you have $650 per child per year. So that 650 only applies for the under 70K family income. And I don't know how it is that a child in a under 70K household will need more dental care necessarily than a child in a under 80K household, but that's for the government to figure out. So now parents will be applying for this program through CRA they have to provide proof that their child has no benefits. They have to provide proof of their income, which CRA should already have. And they have to prove that their child is in that age range. And they have to attest that they will use this money for dental services because CRA is just going to send the money to you, the maximum, if you apply for it. So they have to keep the bills just in case CRA asks for proof. Here's the kicker. I love this. If they don't use all of the money given for dental care, just keep the rest. Don't worry about it. It's on the taxpayer. Well, I, th I thought that one of the stipulations was that it had to be used for dental care. Sure is. But apparently if you get the full, let's say $650 for your child, and you only spend $200 on one cleaning and checkup, just keep the rest. It's all right. The taxpayer is paying for it anyway. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, this is this is just another another wealth distribution program. I mean, that's all these things are. Well, this is crazy. I mean, I I actually I'm not completely against the premise of helping out those who don't have benefits or whatnot. But we've talked about this before that low income families already have government supports for dental care and. 80% of Canadians already have a benefit plan that covers dental care, either through their work, through their union, from their spouse, etc. So we're talking a very, very small sliver of the population as it is. And the government, well, because our government is incompetent, is just doing exactly what it keeps doing for everything else. Let's just throw money at the problem. And this is really not doing anything to well to deliver any efficient kind of help it's just like you say it's just more wealth distribution yeah i mean i like you said i'm not against helping out especially when it comes to kids um because i mean we've we've known a couple of kids that went to school with our kids that had like uh you know, rotten teeth because they never saw a dentist. Um, so yeah, I'm not against helping them out, but I mean, throwing money at a problem is not the answer. It's, it never is the answer. I mean, yeah, you need some money to, to, to do it, but, but by just, I mean, it's already like, it's really hard to find a dentist in the first place. So throwing money at the problem is not going to help that. Um, there's there's other issues too, but I mean, yeah, I mean, in the end, this is just a wealth distribution program, especially if, you know, you have to use the money for dental care, but if you don't, yeah, it's all right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, uh, so now you're going to have some parents and then, and some because there's always abuse in the system. So here's the abuse that, that I see yeah. coming is that parents will will meet these criteria. Yeah, we have kids, et cetera, et cetera, this age. Yes, I make under this amount of money. So give me the benefit. 
I won't take my kids to the dentist. I'll use that money instead for, well, in this, in this day and age, for groceries, for rent, or whatever. And all the government can say is, oh, whatever. You, know, you didn't use it for dental, but at least you have it just in case. Yeah. So it's, there was a way back when I was a kid, because um, I, I grew up with a, a poor single mom. And I remember uh, Alberta Social Services at that time when I was in grade four or five, they would actually just pay it. So you'd go to the dentist and they would just bill social services. And that seemed to work okay because that was how we got in to get our teeth teeth done. So I don't know why they couldn't have administered it that way or, you know, some way where, you know, the money doesn't even touch anybody's hands. It just gets, gets paid by the government. That would have been to me more efficient, but no, no, let's just throw some money around. Well, government is not about efficiency. Um, <laughs> they, uh, they, they typically, aside from that example you gave, aside from that example, government typically finds the most inefficient way possible to do most things. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's not surprising, but I mean, you, when you realize what the end goal is, um, this makes sense, right? Like the end goal is to spread wealth out as much as possible so that nobody's wealthy. And, uh, uh, and I mean, that's, that's what this is in the end, because, you know, like the stipulation that you must use it for dental care, but if you don't, it's okay. Uh, is, is such a, you know, it's, it's such an example of just, you know, wealth redistribution. I mean, and it's, it, and that's all this is. That's all this really is. And I mean, and in the end, I mean, we're really, like you and I have brought up before on this show, and I mean, you just brought it up a few minutes ago where you said that, you know, most people have dental care already, uh, which is true. Um, in the end, I believe we're talking about a pretty small group of people it's only about five percent of the population that this would even uh impact is about five percent so it's not a big program in the end and uh but you know there's it's always the beginning of something bigger uh and that's the that's the thing that i object to the most uh, and I know you do as well, because it never just ends with this. It always starts with this and ends with, you know, publicly funded dental care. Uh, and we know how publicly funded health care has worked for this country. And hint, it hasn't. Um, and, uh, and we're just going to head down the road to ruin. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I hope this is the end. I know it isn't, it will keep getting expanded as we move down the years, but, uh, I just hope that, you know, people get elected who have better ideas and have the balls to remove the bad ideas. Yeah, and uh, we discussed this on past shows just to remind Canada that, yes, as long as the NDP Liberal Coalition stays intact, Jagmeet Singh has demanded that this program expand and is eventually going to cover Canadians, all Canadians under 18. So it's, uh, like you say, it's, it is going to expand, it's going to get bigger. And in true government speak, they have actually, well, they put at least on paper a fail-safe. Now, they've said that people who apply for the money and don't use it for dental care could face a maximum fine of $5,000 for not utilizing the money for dental care. But they also say in that same legislation that if you don't use it all for dental care, that's okay, you keep the rest. So I don't know how they expect to police their own stupidity in that, that way because they just contradicted themselves. Well, yeah, and I mean, you got... 
people who can't afford four or 500 bucks for dental care and you're going to find them five grand. <laughs> that's like, yeah. that's like writing a, a hundred dollar fine to a homeless person for loitering. Right. Yeah. And they, and they like, do that actually. I know they do. <laughs> I mean, it's the most ridiculous thing. I mean, that's, that's so stupid. Um, I, I think that your example of, you know, social services just directly paying for it is is a much better idea uh in terms of program costs and uh and you know the best use of the money um i mean i i just i just don't i don't i can't i have such a hell of a time wrapping my head around anything that jagmeet singh says and um, and this is no different. I mean, I don't understand why he would demand that this program cover everyone under the age of 12 when, you know, 90% or more of people in this country already have dental care covered by, a, uh, by an insurance program through, through work, which they they probably only pay about half of uh which which by the way is a much better bang for the buck anyway um i mean when i had uh when i was working for someone else and i had a a dental program i believe i only paid i paid 50 percent of the costs which meant that i believe my bill every month was like $65 or something like that. And that, and that was like coverage for my entire family. Um, I know my wife's company pays a hundred percent of her uh, extended health benefits and that covers dental and all of that. Um, it's, uh, and I know my own company, we have, we have uh, health spending accounts. So the company pays 100% of your bill up to X amount that, I, that, that, we, uh, that we give our employees every year. So, um, I mean, this is, why would you take, why would you take something and put it on the taxpayer's dole that is already being taken care of by private industry at a pretty good price, like a pretty affordable, well, you know, a well-managed uh, system that that doesn't cost a lot. And the reason it doesn't cost a lot is because it's private industry that's doing it, and they don't waste money the way uh, government does. And, um, and I mean, it's already being done. So why are we trying to take that away and make the taxpayer pay for it? It's ridiculous. I mean, all that does is result in higher taxes. And we don't need higher taxes. Our taxes are ridiculous right now, especially taxes on fuel and, and sales taxes and all of that. I mean, especially in BC here, where now our provincial sales tax, if you buy a used car, they don't charge you the sales tax based on what you paid. It's based on what they value the car at. So if you buy a car and you get a good deal on it because, you know, there's issues with the paint or there's rust on the bumpers or there's, you know, or, or it needs engine work or it needs a transmission or something like that. You get a good deal. Okay. You, you find a $10,000 car, but you get it for three grand because it needs work. Well, the book value on that car is 10 grand. So your sales tax is based on 10 grand, not three grand. I mean, that's, that's the kind of, that's the kind of BS that we're dealing with in this country now, especially, I mean, not just this country, but in BC, we also have higher tax rates now for natural gas fired appliances. 
Like if you buy a gas stove or a gas furnace, you're paying twice as much GST and PST as you do if you buy an electric range oh or an God. electric furnace. Yeah, yeah. That's in BC now. That's law. Oh, geez. Yeah, and uh, well, actually, that segues in with a, a poll that came out a few weeks ago. It's three quarters of Canadians believe we pay too much in taxes, 72%. Now, all I could think was that 28% who doesn't think we pay too much taxes are probably those who don't pay any taxes. Like no, absolutely, taxes. absolutely true. Absolutely true. And, but those 78%, it was 78? 72. 72. Those 72% of Canadians that believe we pay too much taxes. Why do you keep voting for the NDP and the Liberals? Excellent question. If you believe we pay too much tax, stop voting for the people who raise them. Yeah, good point. So, uh, well, that actually kind of segues in because a lot of those voters tend to be in Ontario and Quebec. So let's go to Ontario. Just when we thought the whole teacher situation was dealt with because Doug Ford decided to back off and pull the back-to-work legislation off the table, they offered up a 3.59% wage increase, which was a far cry from the 11% that the QP union was asking for. And they had agreed to the 3.59% wage increase, but now decided that, well, you know what? We are going to strike if you don't now start hiring more support staff. So now the strike is back on the table. And all I'm gonna say is Ontario teachers, what's gonna be next? I don't actually buy your BS now. You wanted a wage increase, you got it, you accepted it. And suddenly now, oh no, now it's more support staff. So now if Doug Ford gives you more support staff, what's next? Yeah, no, they're just moving the goalposts. Um, yeah. It's almost like they're, it's almost like they want to strike and they're trying to find reasons to, um, I, uh, or they're just trying to find ways to damage Doug Ford. I don't know. Um, yeah. Yes to both really. Yeah. I mean, uh, but at the same time, I also think that a lot of teachers are a little, um, removed from reality. Um, because they, and I mean, this isn't, this is not, uh, an attack on teachers at all, because I just think this is reality. I mean, my dad is a teacher. He's been a teacher for 45 years. Um, and he's still, he's still substituting at almost a full-time uh, rate right now. He's working uh, three to five days a week still, wow. and he's 69 years old. Um, and he's, but he loves it. He just loves to teach. And so now the thing is, so I've got nothing against teachers. I not, not in general. I have, I have problems with individual, some individual teachers who push their ideology in class and stuff like that. I've had to have a few meetings with a few of my, uh, my, my kids teachers over stuff like that. Um, but uh, but in general, I have nothing against teachers. I have a great deal of respect for what they do because what they do is very difficult. Um, if you had to deal with 30 teenagers every single day, I mean, <laughs> uh, good luck, man. Because um, <laughs> I don't want that job. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but... What I have a what what I'm saying is is that teachers live in a different world. They live in a world of academia, which we already know is extremely left wing. Um, they live in a world where they do not play by the same rules as the rest of us. Uh, they work on yeah you know for the government, so. They work for an employer who has, quote unquote, an endless supply of money. Um, they also, uh, unless they have a spouse that works in the private sector, 
um, they have a really warped view of how much money everybody else makes. Um, because I think teachers actually believe they're, that they're underpaid and they don't make very much. Um, when in reality, teachers are, uh, if you are you know, working as a teacher for more than 10 years and you've got a couple of degrees, you are making, you are a top 10% income earner in the country. Like you are in the top 10% of income earners in Canada if you are a teacher with like two degrees and uh, you've been working for more than 10 years. And I don't think teachers know that. Um, I've had discussions with a couple, with, with a few teachers this year. I, and I asked them, you know, like, and I said, you know, like, how do you like being a teacher? And the first thing they said to me was, they don't get paid enough. And they said that the, that they, when they started teaching, you know, you could be a single income family and the other person, your spouse didn't have to work. But now that's not the case. And I, and I looked at them dumbfounded uh, because um, that's the reality for everyone. That's not just teachers. That's everybody. And I told them that. And they were surprised. Like, believe it or not, it's like they don't. Well, these teachers that I was talking to specifically. Not, I'm not, and so please don't, don't think that I'm slamming all teachers here. Um, but the teachers I was speaking to specifically um, were actually surprised when I told them that that was the case for everyone. <laughs> um, and it was, it was a little shocking. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of teachers, not all, and maybe not even most, but a lot of teachers um, believe that they are paid less than most people, I think. Um, and it's, uh, and, and, it, and it's like, they just need a dose of reality. Well, actually you're not wrong on that. I remember and this was the mid nineties that I was going to university of Alberta and our professors told us, cause I, I studied, I studied to be a teacher for those who are newer to the show and don't know my history. Um, my professors at, at U of A told us real regularly that, you know, Oh, teachers accept low pay because of the honor of the profession, et cetera, et cetera. And I mean, that's just not the reality. You're right. They're not underpaid. So, I mean, maybe that's why they thought they would capitulate to a only 3.59% raise in pay. But yeah, now, now, like you say, now they're just moving the goalposts and now it's support staff. And if Doug Ford agrees to support staff, you know, I don't trust the union not to say, oh, okay, well, Maybe next weekend we'll strike then if we don't get whatever on top of support stuff. So uh, a strike deadline is looming. It's five o'clock Eastern time this afternoon. So from the time yeah. we're recording this show, it's only about five hours, six hours away. So we'll, uh, we'll have more for you next weekend on it. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, I just want to make, I, I want to make it clear, right? I'm not, this is not an attack on teachers in general. At all. Um, no. Not at all. I mean, we both have a great deal of respect for a lot of teachers. Um, I mean, like I said, my dad's my dad's been a teacher for more than forty five years. So, um, but uh, just just to give you some idea of of how much a teacher can make in Canada, uh, in BC, the top top high school teachers can make uh, between eighty and ninety thousand dollars a year. Uh, in Alberta, they can make a hundred thousand dollars a year. Wow. Uh, we have a uh, a friend who was a high school French teacher in Calgary, and she was making a hundred thousand dollars a year. Nice. And so, I mean, like this, and that's, it's, I mean, not, a, not everybody in the country, not all the teachers in the country make as much as they do in Alberta. That's for sure. Um, I mean, there's, there's like a, 
a $15,000 difference between the top teachers in from BC to Alberta. Alberta pays, I believe, the most for teachers. Um, but still, $100,000 a year, I mean, top 10% uh, income earner in Canada, I believe, is 86000 Yeah, so that's a, that, that's a great rate of pay. So, um, so one more thing on Ontario before we move on is that, well, some university students are already seeing this. The uh, chief medical officer in Ontario has said, well, you know what, we really need to uh, start looking at masking again. And he's recommending masks for indoor use. And some universities have just said, oh, no, we're actually making masking mandatory. Oh my so God. Uh, I thought we were done with this. Yeah, well, you know, in BC, we just on Friday, because David Eby is our new premier, he was sworn in on Friday. Um, and he came out swinging. I mean, on Friday, he came out and he says, there's no more isolation requirements if you test positive. Awesome. So while BC is doing that, Ontario is saying, you better start wearing masks again. <laughs> and in Alberta, they fired their uh, chief medical officer. So, I mean, we're, I think by now, like these chief medical officers should really understand what is and is not required and what does and does not work. And it doesn't sound like Ontario has uh, uh, a very good grasp on this. Well, I mean, the people of Ontario likely do. I mean, I don't understand how these unelected bureaucrats, as in the chief medical officers, don't understand that we the people have had enough of this garbage. Yeah, especially now that it's basically turned into a seasonal cold. Um, why, are, why are we still doing this? Yeah, well, that was actually reasons he had cited. He said, oh, with the, the, with the flu increasing, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, well, we know how to deal with the flu. We know how to deal with colds. So shut up and shove your masks up your... <clears throat> yeah, well, I mean, I, like one thing that I... One thing that I actually wanted to see come out of this whole thing with COVID was that maybe we would start treating the seasonal flu and the seasonal cold a little differently that people maybe people would wear masks when they were feeling sick um because it's it's kind of just a courteous thing to do maybe um i you can probably tell by my voice that i've been dealing with uh a cold this week um and i wore a mask when i went to the grocery store and stuff like that just because i didn't want to um, spread what I've got. Um, it's been, it's been, uh, actually kind of a nasty one. Um, not, I, we did test me. I was negative for COVID, but, um, so this is just a, just a regular seasonal cold. Um, it's just lingering. It, it isn't like, it doesn't want to go away. And so I just didn't want to spread it to anyone else. So when I went to the grocery store, I wore a mask. And I mean, and it isn't totally unusual. There's, there's always about, you know, I would say about 20% of the people in the grocery store are still wearing masks. So, um, so it wasn't like people were giving me dirty looks or anything like that. And, and I, and I just, I just think, you know, I mean, we saw it in Asian countries before COVID that they would wear masks whenever they weren't feeling good out in public right and and i don't think that's a bad idea i just think that it's i just think it's a really a really crappy idea and a really horrible idea and a a very wrong idea to force people to wear masks and yeah. and i but i mean i i just think that, you know it is kind of the courteous thing to do to wear a mask if you're not feeling well but if you're feeling fine why should you wear a mask you shouldn't and should a government ever, you know, force you into it? No, no, I don't think so. Um, 
and that's kind of what the last two years have been all about yeah exactly so um well and we'll dovetail on that and talk very briefly about the public order emergency inquiry it's it's sucking up a lot of the oxygen from the news cycle kind of unnecessarily i mean we've been hearing more testimony this week from CSIS, from the rcmp and brenda lucky is looking worse and worse um and we're finding out now that CSIS did not recommend use of the emergencies act of course and this coming week is when Trudeau and his cabinet are going to be testifying. So next weekend, we're going to have a lot more to say about it. But I just wanted to touch on it briefly because it was Justin Trudeau's, I believe she's his deputy security advisor, or maybe she's his personal security advisor. Regardless, the woman's a flake. And she was one who was actually quoted saying that the Freedom Convoy participants were a bunch of quote, racist, white supremacists, and that they know nothing of democracy or how democracy works. So it's good to know that the Trudeau cabinet and his advisors are still the unbiased nonpartisans that we expect them to be. Oh, I believe, isn't she the clerk of the Privy Council? Is that what she is? Yeah, okay. I believe so. Yeah, so I, that no. would be, for those keeping count, that would be two clerks of the Privy Council in a row that were jerks. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, I think that's probably all we'll say on the public order emergency is stay tuned because I, I think it's going to be great when Marco Medicino hits the hits the witness stand because he's going to be under oath and he doesn't know how to tell the truth. So, well, I, I mean, what's, what's yeah, yeah, but I mean, what's happening right now is that she was when she testified, she tried to change the definition of the law that's on the books. Uh, with regards to implementing the Emergencies Act. Um, because I believe she testified that there's nothing in the law that says you have to uh, consult with CSIS or the RCMP before, before uh, bringing in the Emergencies Act. But it also says that you must that the conditions must um, uh, warrant it, that there, yeah, must and, be, there must be a threat to national security. And the only way to know that is if you consult with CSIS and the RCMP. Well, it even says that section two of the CSIS act must be met in, you know, in CSIS opinion. So uh, yeah, she's really stretching. Yeah, I mean that's it's it's unreal. I mean, I it, it's it's kind of jaw dropping, but at the same time, it's not surprising because you know, whenever it just seems that whenever liberals speak their line, um, especially when they're testifying. <laughs> <coughs> Sorry, um, but but yeah, no, I mean she's. Uh, she's saying some pretty crazy things because i mean if you're going to invoke something like the emergencies act it damn well better meet the requirements when oh, you start exactly. because i mean what you're doing is you're imposing martial law and and if you're going to impose martial law there are some very strict requirements that must be met and they were not met when they did this no the, exactly CSIS even told the PMO that the Freedom Convoy was not a threat to national security. I believe two days before they actually invoked it. Yep, they did. And and then the and then the clerk of the Privy Council, she's I I, I believe that's her position. Don't don't quote me on that. Um, testifies that oh they don't have to meet with CSIS or the RCMP <laughs> to invoke the emergencies act but CSIS has to confirm that it is a national security it, it's like this circle that they didn't they didn't um complete you know like it's they didn't even try yeah exactly so uh so we'll move off that. I want to touch just very briefly on Justin Trudeau because I actually have to give him a break. And 
We don't do that a lot because he doesn't deserve any kind of praise or breaks or pats on the back from anybody. But he at least got the right talking point out with his little meeting with Xi Jinping that the mainstream media is doing everything they can to say he what a great leader he is. And, oh, boy, Trudeau stood his ground. And no, no, Trudeau did not. He made one good talking point, and I'll give him credit for it. When Xi Jinping scolded Justin Trudeau because uh, some of the text of their, their meeting got out in the media and Xi Jinping was mad and said, you need to control your media. You shouldn't let them be spreading messages of, of our conversation. And Justin Trudeau didn't even wait for the interpreter to get the whole statement out. He just said, we believe in fair and open dialogue and we'll continue to have that. And I thought, you're absolutely right, doofus, except you don't believe your own BS because his actions have proven him wrong, but at least he actually, for once, said something right outside of the country. Yeah, and, and it, you know, this is where Canadian common sense differs from other media outlets or from other commentators or from even just regular old Canadians. We will give Justin Trudeau credit if he deserves it. And in this case, he deserves it. Um, but that's as far as I'm going to go with him. <laughs> um, Agreed. The problem is, the problem I saw online especially was the number of people, like people, self-proclaimed conservatives or conservative voters online we're ripping Justin Trudeau because China's pissed at him. Well, since when do we support communist dictatorships over our own country, over our own leader? Um, regardless of who our leader is, uh, we, I do not support Chinese, China, the China's communist dictator over justin trudeau i'm sorry i just don't yep oh well, i hear that and, all right but, but what i but but i saw a lot of this online where people are just like going off teeing off on justin trudeau because he pissed off china well shouldn't we yeah i don't care if we piss them off shouldn't we be pissing them off because if we're pissing them off it means we're doing something right that's a good point yep so so speaking of doing things right so we had talked on a previous show about a saskatchewan marshal service and this service which won't come won't actually come into place until i believe it's 2025 or 26 and designed to do what the u.s marshals do chase down outstanding warrants well the RCMP was recently at a meeting of Saskatchewan regional municipalities or the rural, rural municipalities where the assistant commissioner for Saskatchewan actually said, well, why do you need a marshal service? Why don't you just give us the extra funding? Now, Lewis, I know we had a talk about Miles Sanderson and didn't he have a few outstanding warrants that the RCMP just kind of forgot about? Yeah, quite a few. Yeah, so if, um, if they had that extra funding, well, they certainly weren't even trying to chase down warrants on Miles Sanderson, who murdered 10 people, in case we've forgotten. Yeah, I don't know why the RCMP wants more things to do. Um, I mean, I they've got, they got crimes to solve. Uh, let someone else track down these people because you got too much on your plate already. Like, let another service go out there and track these people down who have outstanding warrants or who have skipped bail or whatever. Get, like, there should be a dedicated service out there just doing that. And maybe... Maybe if they had already had this in place, maybe Miles Sanderson wouldn't have gone on that murderous rampage. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, I'm actually 100% in favor of 
a marshal service and yep ease the burden on the rcmp let them do what they're good at yep all right one more topic for today i know we're a little bit over on our time but well we do that once in a while immigration now we've all heard that Justin Trudeau has decided he wants very ambitious targets for immigration. 23% of Canadians are now foreign-born. So great, good to have people moving in. But he wants to increase our immigration numbers to 500,000 a year when we already have some housing crises in our larger Canadian markets. What are your thoughts? Yeah, that's, that's insane. Um, I don't know of any region of Canada that isn't having a housing issue. Um, I mean, just the little town I live in, in the last seven years, my house has increased by a million dollars. Wow. In seven, in seven years, because we don't have enough supply. And you got more and more people moving in with not enough houses being built, um, it's just gonna make things even more expensive. We're, we're facing a cost of living crisis in this country. And you wanna bring more people in to compete for the few houses that we've got? Like, if you're gonna do that, you need to make other bigger changes before you do that. like. Make it law that a, a building permit gets approved in two weeks rather than six months. Um, or that the, the uh, you know, you can't, you're not, like the, the building permit for a house is $100 instead of five grand. Or in Vancouver, a building permit can be as much as $100,000. I mean, this is, you've got to make housing more affordable and you do that by increasing supply and reducing unnecessarily high costs to get these houses built, to get these townhouses built, to get these condos built. Um, and you got to increase the housing supply before you start increasing the people that need them. And, um, it is a bit of a catch 22 because we are, we do have a labor shortage. Um, but again, a labor shortage that was caused by the government in the first place. And, uh, and, and I mean, this just goes to show you, this just goes to show you that, that what we've, what we've said in the past is so true. Everything that government touches, they ruin. And, uh, and this is, again, one more thing. I mean, most Canadians, I can't remember what you said that the poll number was, but most Canadians don't, don't want to increase immigration. Yeah, just over half of us, yeah. Yeah, so over half of Canadians don't want to increase immigration. And again, I'm going to say this, if you don't want to increase immigration, stop voting for the people who want to increase immigration. Um, this is, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, the, the, it just seems like there's not a whole lot of thought gone into any of the decisions that are being made in any level of government right now. It's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of holding hands and singing Kumbaya and not a whole lot of, not a whole, not a whole lot of thought. Yeah, well, and um, our listener Mackenzie had actually sent us a message a while back, stating that you know, immigration is a is a problem, especially in southern Ontario where he lives, because eight out of ten of immigrants to Canada end up in the GTA, and that was kind of the point he had made: is that the population is growing there so much because of a, immigration is a big part of it. And that's one of the big reasons the housing in Toronto is so ridiculous. So if the government's going to bring in Im immigrants, they really need to start taking an approach like Quebec it does and what Saskatchewan is now trying to do is that target it. Say, okay, 
hey, these communities need workers, et cetera. And we're doing that somewhat in Saskatchewan. There's this, actually one small community that's brought in four different families from Ukraine, for example. And, you know, they've got one guy who's working at a welder. They've got one couple who's working at this other manufacturing plant. And it's like, we have to fill these positions. So let's bring in the immigrants that can do it. And honestly, if government's going to get involved, then maybe they need to say that, yeah, we need people in rural Canada. We need people in Manitoba, for example. Maybe northern BC needs people. Yeah. They don't all have to go to Toronto. And yet that seems to be what's, what's happening. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, and I, I think I, before we before we wrap it up, I want to bring up another issue um, just quickly. I don't know if people have seen in the news here this this week, uh, but in Merritt, British Columbia, which is where I was born and raised, and about an hour and a half from here, where I live right now, um, they've experienced uh, a couple of shootings this week oh my gosh um earlier in the week i think it was tuesday there was over a hundred shots fired and on friday there was another shooting three people have been arrested for kidnapping uh there's more people that the rcmp are searching for um They've had RCMP helicopters flying over over town all week. Uh, a portion of the city has been um, taped off and you, and closed to the public. Um, it's a town of about seventy five hundred people, and it's that. But this this violence is indicative of what is going on more broadly in bc uh and i know in alberta the same thing has been happening lately uh a little community outside of calgary called langdon um has experienced uh a shooting and um a car that was lit on fire with a body inside um and that town's only about 3,500 people i used to live there um uh, I know my town here, Summerland, uh, earlier this year, we had a, uh, a car that was on fire and had two bodies inside. There was a, uh, there was two bodies that were lit on fire on a little side road beside the highway. No car involved in that one. They just lit two bodies on fire on the side of the highway. Um, this is this is becoming more and more common in Canada. Uh, the level of violence, the level of uh, criminal activity is increasing dramatically and it will continue to increase dramatically as our interest rates keep going up and as uh, in inflation keeps going the way it is because people are going to run out of options. Uh, to get food and to uh, pay their bills, they're going to have to turn to crime. Um, a lot of people are turning to drugs and, and all of that because they, they are having a hard time dealing with life right now. And this is all the result of government policy from the past two years. And it's high time that we hold these people account hold them to account for, for the decisions that have led to what we're experiencing now. And while all of this is happening, while there's more violence, while there's more break-ins and home invasions and assaults and uh, murders and criminal activity, our government is actively taking away our means of protection they're taking away our guns so that we can't protect ourselves uh if someone breaks into your house and you shoot them you are getting charged with murder um this is the canada we live in right now 
And I know I would feel a hell of, a hell of a lot safer if I was allowed to buy a handgun to protect my home and my family. But you're not allowed to anymore. And it's kind of scary. I've added more cameras to my house, but that's not going to stop anyone from, from, you know, committing crimes against me. It's only going to help the police find the guy, but it's not going to stop me from getting hurt or my family from getting hurt or things being stolen from us. Um, I mean, this is, this is, this is reality for, for Canada now. And it's, it's a sad reality and it's not one that I like. And it's all born from government policy from the past two years. I mean, it's policy that the government's had for much longer than that. It's just been compounded over the past two years. And it's, it's high time that we hold governments to account for their decisions. Yep, that is very, very well said. Uh, it's actually a really good way to wrap the show up. That was an excellent editorial. All right, Canada, we do thank you for joining us. And until next week, if those of you who are getting on out to the game or watch it on TV, enjoy the Grey Cup. And we will see you next week. It is Tony in Saskatchewan. And Lewis out here in BC. Go Bombers. Go Bombers. Good night, Canada. and Tony.